Hope you will take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. As you turn there, let me try this for an introduction. This morning as we go to the scriptures, I think there's a good chance I'm not going to tell you anything that you do not already know. I wonder how that works for a hook. Maybe not the best way to grab your attention. This morning, we're gathered together. You've come in here so I can tell you things that you already know. Let me follow it up like this. We've come together so I can tell you things that you already know. But I believe and I'm convinced that what we're going to see from God's word this morning is something that we all need to hear again today. Every one of us. Isn't it true that as we come together as the church each Lord's Day, week in and week out, so much of what we do is rehearsal of what we already know to be true? Hearing the truth again. Being reminded again. Believing it again. This morning we come to a text, as Gabe's already alluded to, that you're familiar with. An interaction between Jesus and his disciples is recorded in three of the four gospels. You've probably read it often and heard it preached many times. You could probably come up. I could invite any of you up. You could read it. You could understand it and maybe explain it pretty well to us. It's not complex, but it's essential. It's worthy of our time. It's an important text because it pushes us to ask an important question. And the question's given in the text. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? And again, one of those statements where if you're not careful, you could hear, this is where this sermon's headed. Who is Jesus? And you could mentally check out. Because you've got that one down. And if that's the case, that you know who Jesus is, I'm really glad for that. But I want to invite you in. Don't check out. Stay with us. I need this reminder this morning, and you need this reminder this morning, of who Jesus Christ is. And not only who he is, but why what we believe about him should impact every part of our lives. It should impact the way you work tomorrow. If you've been with us, then I hope you remember the context of where we are in the Gospel of Mark. We actually come this morning to a significant transition in the flow of the book. We are eight chapters into the Gospel. But for just a second, I want to go back to the beginning. Mark chapter 1. Do you remember why Mark is writing? We started this back in January, and for those first couple of months, I said it every week. Mark is writing so that we can know who Jesus is. And he tells us who he believes Jesus is in the first verse of the first chapter. Mark 1, verse 1, he says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. He begins the gospel by announcing that he's writing of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. 
These are significant claims. He's saying Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. And Jesus is the very Son of God, which is to say he is God. He makes this declaration, first verse. We got that week number one, January 20-something of this year when we started. But here's something I want you to recognize and to note. That we are now eight chapters into the gospel, and outside of verse one, we have not heard anyone else point to Jesus and make this kind of declaration. Now, there's been those who have been impressed by Jesus and have shown a measure of faith in Jesus, but there's not been anyone in the eight chapters that we've considered who recognized him as the Christ, the Son of God. And he's done some impressive things, right? We've walked week through week and we've seen the wonders of Christ. The casting out of demons, the making of lame to walk, the giving of blind sight, hearing to the deaf. He speaks and the wind and the sea obey him. He feeds thousands out of virtually nothing and he even raises a girl from the dead. He's shown his power He's made significant claims, but up to this point, Mark has not recorded anyone rightly identifying who he is. He's been called Lord, teacher, master, but not the Christ. If you've been with us over the last few weeks in particular, you'll remember that the men who we would most expect to see him rightly have been noticeably slow to believe. The disciples, the 12 who have been with Jesus the longest, they've seen all the miracles, they've heard the teaching, they've even gotten backdoor conversation about the teaching. They have a lack of understanding. In fact, two weeks ago, starting in verse 17, Jesus rebukes them by asking this series of questions. Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes to see, do you not see? Having ears to hear, do you not hear? Do you not remember? I fed the 5,000 and you picked up the leftovers. Do you not remember I fed the 4,000 and you picked up the leftovers? Do you not yet understand? It's become increasingly clear that for all they have seen and all they have heard, they still don't have a good understanding of who Jesus really is. That was two weeks ago, a series of questions. And then last week, we saw a miracle where Jesus takes a blind man, a man who could not see, and gives him sight. We were reminded last week that Jesus is the one who opens the eyes of the blind. So consider the context. He rebukes his disciples because they have eyes and they cannot see. And then he gives sight to a blind man as an illustration, that he is the one who opens blind eyes. And now this morning we come, and after eight chapters, we hear for the first time a confession. A confession of who Jesus is. And it's a transition in the book. The disciples come to a point where they begin to show signs that their eyes are being opened, and that they can see clearly. Mark chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 27 to 30. I'll remind you again of how 
unbroken the flow of this chapter is. And we were now breaking it up in about six parts and it's not worthy of division anywhere. So we will stop earlier than we should this morning, but we will pick back up next week. For this morning, verses 27 to 30, hear the word of God. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of God will stand forever. Ask that God would add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. So we come to the passage, it's not complex. It's not a passage that we have to work really hard to understand. And I will confess, sometimes I like those passages because you think, I don't know what this says. And I get to help you. That's fun. This is a pretty straightforward story. Jesus is walking with his disciples. They're traveling. And he asks them two questions. You could make the outline, couldn't you? Two questions, two answers. But it's through these questions and answers that we see a significant transition. While many, if not most people, had struggled to see who Jesus was, to see him rightly, for the first time we have clear evidence that the disciples' eyes are being opened. So we're going to consider this exchange, these questions and answers. And as we do, I want you to keep asking yourself the question, what do I believe about Jesus? There's there's no more important question than this one. And it's a place where even those of us who have made confessions of faith for decades, we must remain vigilant here. We must not stray from who Jesus is. This isn't a a place for transformation. We must cling to it. If at any point we lose hold of the right understanding of Jesus, we lose everything. And I hope you recognize That the way you answer that question of who Jesus is is not only a question about eternity, although it certainly is that. It's also a question about whether or not you go into tomorrow with fear. Or whether you go into tomorrow with confidence. The way you answer this question makes a difference. Not only for eternity, but for today. With that in mind, let's consider the passage. Again, we have a change of locations. We've been moving all over the map over the past several weeks. Last week we were in Bethsaida. That's where he healed the blind man. It's on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. But today we see them walking north about 25 miles. It's a good day's walk, right? Going 25 miles north to the area of Caesarea Philippi. It's another Gentile region known for its paganism, for its temple to the gods. They're on the way. And Jesus has this conversation with his disciples. And and don't forget what's lingering in the minds of the disciples. They may not even be 24 hours removed from the rebuke of Christ. Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not understand? 
You remember being a kid. You remember being in trouble. And then the next conversation starts. And you think, here we go again. They're walking, and Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? See that in verse 27. Now, I don't want to give the impression that this is an unimportant question. It has a purpose. This first question is important, but it's not the primary question of the passage. The primary question is the second question. But this one lays an important foundation. Before Jesus asks the personal question, he asks the general question. He's pushing the disciples, before they consider their own hearts, to consider the hearts of others. So he asks this broad question. Who do people say that I am? Now, some have suggested that Jesus is just curious. That he wants to know how his message is playing around town. Trying to get a read on the polls. That's not it at all. Jesus doesn't need anyone to tell him what the crowds think. He knows the heart of every man. This question is for the disciples' benefit. He's pushing them to consider and to articulate not first what they believe, but what other people believe about Jesus. He will turn the question on them, but first he wants them to acknowledge popular opinion. What's the consensus? What are the crowds? What are the people you know, the people who you grew up with? Who's everyone saying that Jesus is? Before they hear their answer, let's think for a minute about how this question is answered today. Who do people say that Jesus is? If we go to the History Channel documentaries or to the secular academic community, we're going to get a lot of answers about Jesus as a teacher, about a religious leader. And these are common views, that Jesus was a great teacher, a significant religious figure, and that we can learn a lot from considering his teachings on compassion and acceptance. And I think when many people say these things, they're not trying necessarily to diminish who Jesus is. They're saying there's a man that lived 2,000 years ago and we're still reading about him. He said some good things about love and compassion. Pretty standard views. People don't deny Jesus or reject him outright, but they limit his influence and importance. They put him in a box. He's one of many. Others may be willing to go a little further. There are others who go further and are willing to confess that Jesus is more than a man, and they may even be willing to say, I believe Jesus is God or associated with God. And there are many, quote-unquote, Christians who acknowledge Jesus in word, but beyond the confession with their lips, there's little to no impact on their lives. Yeah, he's the one they sing about on Christmas. And we'll talk about him again at Easter, but beyond that, there's not much thought of Jesus. Certainly, certainly not someone who has any claim on day-to-day life. I want to suggest that there are many people who have good thoughts of Jesus, who give him an affirming nod when asked the question, but who fall woefully short of seeing Jesus for who he really is. And to a large extent, I think that's what the disciples see in their own day. Jesus asked the question in verse 27, who do people say that I am? And, and they respond, 
John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. I wonder if you've recognized this before. When he asks who do people say that I am, they don't talk about his enemies. Yes, there were many who thought Jesus was a lunatic. There were many who thought he was possessed by demons. You remember back in chapter 3? Chapter 3, verse 22, the scribes came down from Jerusalem and were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. How does he do these things? He's demon-possessed. That was a way that some people thought of Jesus. He's a lunatic. He's possessed. But the disciples don't mention those. They don't mention those who are radically opposed to Christ. Instead, they give Jesus some of the more positive takes. If we think about the spectrum, these are fairly respectable opinions. Respectful, I should say. They tell him, many people think you're one of the prophets. Now, the prophets were thought well of, right? Some think that you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist was well thought of by most. He had a great following, many disciples. If you look back at historical documents from this time, you see a lot about John the Baptist. He made a big impact. This wasn't a slight. People saw Jesus as a continuation of the ministry of John the Baptist. But how does that even work? Well, remember, John was killed. Now, Jesus comes along, not only saying some of the same things that John said, but performing miracles. And so this was the reasoning. John died, and it was either reincarnate or his spirit inhabits now this man Jesus. And it's through that spiritual condition that he can do these miracles. And we saw this. If you, if you want to think I'm making this up, chapter 6, verse 14. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in Jesus. Some thought Jesus was John the Baptist. That was one opinion. Another opinion was that maybe he was Elijah. And of course, this is another belief that has some logic behind it. It actually has scripture behind it. If I'm living at this time, I might be in this camp. Because I've read my Bible and what I know is that Elijah didn't die. He was caught up in a whirlwind and taken to heaven. And not only that, but there's prophecies. Remember Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Malachi says that before the great and awesome day of the Lord, Elijah will come. Maybe this is him. Now, as a side note, we talked earlier in this year about how John the Baptist is actually the fulfillment of that prophecy of Elijah. But here we have people saying, not to minimize the work of Jesus, but actually to affirm it. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's one of the great prophets, Isaiah, or Ezekiel, or Moses. Here's the point. Most of those who claimed to be followers of God did not merely think Jesus of Jesus as a good teacher or an ordinary prophet. They associated him with the great prophets. They saw him as a messenger of God. These people are offering what they believe to be respectful views. In their minds, they may not be insulting Jesus. They believe he is one of the great prophets. But of course, we know this is an assessment that falls woefully short. To see Jesus, who is God in the flesh, as anything less than that, is to greatly obscure the truth. 
John the Baptist knew Jesus was more. Go back to John chapter 1 where John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one of whom I said, He ranks before me because he was before me. But wasn't John born before Christ? He points to Jesus and says he's the eternal one. John pointed to Jesus as God. And Jesus was not the return of Elijah. In fact, he's the one who created Elijah. He's the one who created the whirlwind that took him up. We believe Jesus is far more than any prophet because he is the one who sent the prophets. He's the one who spoke through the prophets. He's the one to whom the prophets pointed. Jesus is God in flesh, sent by God to accomplish salvation for all who believe. And to say anything less than that is to miss who he really is. And this is why, even though many in the crowds had good assessments of Jesus in their minds, their assessments were woefully insufficient. This was public consensus. Who do people say that I am? Many people have good thoughts of you. Many people believe you're a prophet from old. Here's the question. Is that the camp the disciples fall into? Do the disciples recognize the insufficiency of public consensus? If we go back to what I said earlier, we've recognized the weakness of their faith. We've recognized that these are men who are susceptible to being caught up into the thoughts of the crowd. But now Jesus asks them the second question. Who do you say that I am? I think it's all, we all recognize it's easier to talk in generalities than to take a stand. It's easier to make a judgment about someone else than to make a confession for yourself. Jesus had already asked the easier question, what's the word on the street? But now he turns to his disciples and he asks for more. Who do you say that I am? It's no longer a question about the views of others. It's no longer a question about what is socially acceptable. Who do you believe that I am? And of course, this is a question that we all must answer. Every one of us. It's the central question of the Gospel of Mark. What are you going to do with Jesus? And it's not enough to give a list of other people's opinions. It's not enough to say, well, I heard that he was this and someone else told me he was this. The question's a personal one. Who do you say that Jesus is? It pushes us to put a stake in the ground. And if he's nothing more than a, a moral leader or a good teacher, then maybe you listen to him and maybe you don't. But if he's more than that, if he is who he claimed to be, then it's a question of eternal consequence. This is the question Jesus asks, and it marks a pivotal moment in the Gospel of Mark. Will the disciples answer the same way the crowds did? 
we, we lose some of the suspense because we've heard this passage so many times, don't we? What will they say? Who do they believe he is? Jesus has already pointed out their dim sight, their blurry vision, their inability to understand. But what we see here is a response that indicates that something has changed. Peter responds, and most would agree that he responds not only for himself, but as the spokesman of the group. Peter answers in verse 29, you are Christ. Up to this point, no one else has made a confession like this. Up to this point, many people have thought well of Jesus. But now Peter, on behalf of the disciples, makes an unprecedented confession. That word's still in, right? Unprecedented. Here we see an unprecedented confession. It's different than the majority opinion. It's not one of the views that had previously been mentioned. Peter says something new. You're the Christ. And maybe that doesn't mean much to you. Maybe, what does that even mean? I've always heard Jesus called Jesus Christ. Is that significant? Well, Christ comes from the Greek word Christo, which is the equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah. Messiah is the one the people of God had been promised and who they've been waiting and watching for for generations. To speak of the Messiah was to speak of the anointed one of God. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see this word used in some different contexts. It was a royal title, referred at times to the appointed kings of Israel. But over time, it became almost exclusively associated with the one. The one who would deliver God's people and fulfill all the promises of God for Israel. So it's hard to overestimate what a claim like this means. Yet Peter says it with conviction. And clarity, you are the Christ. You are the long-awaited Messiah. Now, Mark, we've said over and over, it's the simplest of the Gospels. We don't get much of a response from Jesus here. He doesn't commend Peter for his affirmation. But I think as we're reading, we have to stop and ask the question, how did Peter get to this point? What changed? We are only a few verses removed from him being rebuked for his lack of faith. What changed? What takes the disciples' eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear to this? Well, if we just look at the context, what do we have between the two? But the miracle of Jesus opening the eyes of the blind. This affirmation that Jesus is the one who can open the eyes of the blind. But we can go beyond that. We can go to the recording of the same passage in Matthew chapter 16. Listen to what Matthew writes about the interaction. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. Who opens the eyes of the blind so we can behold the beauty of Christ? Only God can change our hearts, open our eyes to see who he really is. 
God opened the eyes of the disciples, and for the first time we hear this great confession, you are the Christ. He is more than a great teacher. He is more than a religious leader. He is more than a great prophet. Jesus has come as God in the flesh, and there's no one like him. As I was thinking about this confession, I thought about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He's talking about idolatry. You know, there's people who worship other gods. Small g. Then he says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 5. He says, although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there's one God, the Father, from whom all things are and for whom all things exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom all things exist. There is one God, and he associates Jesus with that one God because it's from him that all things are and through whom all things exist. And this is our confession. Jesus is God. It's a huge moment in the gospel, but Mark doesn't linger there. Peter makes his confession, and then we see again a call for silence from Jesus. Verse 30, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And again, we've seen this over and over. We saw it last week. The blind man was healed, and he says, don't go back into the city. And over and over with almost every miracle we've seen up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, anytime someone sees Jesus more clearly, he says, don't tell anyone. We know that the full revealing of Christ did not yet come. That won't come until after the death, burial, and resurrection. See, Peter can say he's Messiah, he's the Christ, but most people don't hear that for what it really is, what we know it to be. For Jesus to be the Christ is the coming of a military leader. Jesus needs to redefine for Peter what Messiah really is. That redefinition starts for us next week as he explains what the Christ must do. This is a unique time. Now, to be clear, this time has passed. Now Jesus tells those of us who are his to tell everyone. The silence is not to remain. We must go and we must speak. But this was a unique time. The plan was still being accomplished. So what have we seen? Two questions and two answers. A historic confession and a command to silence. And that's where this section ends. I said at the beginning that I might not tell you anything that you don't already know. Maybe that's proved to be true. But surely, with a truth as central as this one, we must not leave without our hearts being pricked. We've seen the story, we've heard the questions and the answers, but I want to spend just a couple of minutes before we close making four observations from what we can learn about this, from this confession. There's more. I'll keep us to four for this morning. Let's consider this first. The necessity of a right confession. I've already said this and alluded to it, but we must not miss this. And as the one who's responsible for standing before you and opening the word of God on a weekly basis, I do not want to be unclear on this point. 
Jesus is God. And it's not enough to think good things about Jesus. It's not enough to say good things about Jesus. He was a well-known miracle worker. He was a good teacher. And thousands upon thousands of people flocked to him and associated themselves with him. And it was not enough. There are people who have seen more than you've seen. They stood face to face with him. They were touched by him. Some of them physically healed by him. But it's not enough to be associated with Jesus. It's not enough to have good thoughts of him or to acknowledge him as a man of God. No. Jesus comes to earth as God. He dies on the cross as the substitute for our sins, taking the wrath of God on our behalf. And to order to truly benefit from who Jesus is, is to repent of our sins and to confess that it's only through him that salvation is available. That he is the God-man come to earth on our behalf. And the Bible says if we confess that Jesus is God and that if we repent of our sins, that we will be, the word in the Bible is saved. Saved from the wrath of God and forgiven of our sins. And all who do that have eternal life and eternal joy in the presence of God. And all who do not confess this have eternal judgment. There is no more important question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And what do you do with that? So we come to a text like this, we must recognize there is a necessity for a confession. And if you confess him rightly, you have the gift of salvation. But if you miss who he is and you don't accept his offer of forgiveness, eternal judgment. We must start there. Let's also consider this. That while making a confession of Christ is essential, that's only the starting point of a journey of faith. I could say it this way. A true confession of Christ is an ongoing and continual confession. Now, I'll be clear. We believe that we are brought into a relationship with God at a particular point in time. That he does something in our hearts, bringing us to life, opening the blind eyes, giving us faith. In a moment, we are brought into the family of God and he will hold us fast, as we sang. We don't earn our salvation over time. But the Bible also teaches that if you have truly believed, you will never stop in your confession of Christ and you will never stop in your efforts to live for him. See, our confession of Christ is not the end of faith, but the beginning of faith. I think this is where many of us need to be challenged because you come in confidently this morning and you sang the songs declaring Jesus as king question is, do we live as if Jesus is the Christ? Is our confession the confession of our lives ongoing, or are we content to look back on a time where we made this declaration? No doubt there are going to be ups and downs. In fact, we'll get to this next week, but look at the very next paragraph. Mark chapter 8, verse 33 
Turning to, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Journeys of, the journey of faith is that. It is a journey. There are ups and downs, but we must keep moving forward. If you've repented and believed, don't be content where you are. You must keep striving. Confession is not the end of faith, but the beginning. And along with that, consider this, that a right confession of Christ may cost you everything. I think one thing we see in this passage is that Peter's confession was not the majority opinion. There was two questions. First, who do people say that I am? And the majority opinion that Je- was that Jesus was a prophet, that he was a man of God, that he was a, a good teacher. Which means the disciples had a choice to make. They could stay with the crowds or they could stand out from the crowds. They could stay with the crowds. I don't alliterate much. Give me this one. They could stay with the crowds or they could stand out. And we have the same calling. See, a confession of Christ isn't something we only do in this room, but it's a life we live and a declaration we make. Will we stand? I know some of you have experienced this. You may be the only Christ follower in your family. You may be the only Christ follower in your workplace. The question becomes, will you stay true to your confession even if you stand alone? Certainly, we are living in a time where our stance for Christ is no longer culturally accepted. There used to be a certain cultural currency that came along with being a Christ follower. Those days have passed. It's going to become harder and harder for us to stand for Christ, to stand for the things of God. But consider what Jesus tells us to expect. We can just go four verses farther. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. He calls the crowd to him with his disciples, and Jesus says to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you think the declaration of Jesus Christ, and that's the end? No. This is what Jesus tells us to expect for those who confess him as Christ. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with holy angels. This call to radical discipleship comes right on the heels of Peter's confession. Jesus doesn't leave any doubt about what it means to be a follower of his. As we commit to following Christ, this is what we can expect. We must make a confession, and a confession is costly. It could cost you everything. It could cost you everything. But friends, if you confess Christ, you will also gain everything. This is where we'll end this morning. That if you confess Christ, 
you may lose some relationships. You may find at times that you suffer loss for your faith. But what you gain is greater than any loss you will receive. And the gains aren't only in eternity. For those who confess Christ, there is the offer of grace and peace today. If you confess Christ as Lord, you can come to him today and receive joy and peace, knowing that you are in the care of the one who sustains all things. You can rest in knowing that you have a Savior who is compassionate and who has promised to never leave you and to never forsake you. If you confess Christ, you can trust him not only for salvation, but for peace that passes all understanding. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. Take heart, friends. He has overcome the world. If you confess Christ, you're coming to the one who said, come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Christ, we can have joy and peace and rest, not only for all time, but for today. But it's not only for today, it's for all time. In Christ, we have the comfort that death is not the end. We have the hope of eternal joy. There is hope for those who confess Christ. So the question for us is this. Who do you say that Jesus is? My hope is that none of us would be like the crowds who saw Jesus but missed Jesus. My prayer is that you would believe and that by believing, you would have life in his name.